Hi there, you're listening to the SIMP Investing Podcast where we discuss everything finance or business related. SIMP stands for Simplified Integrity Meaning Prudence. Find us on Spotify, Apple, and Google Podcasts. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram at SIMP Investing. A disclaimer before we like to begin, information and content discussed does not constitute financial advice and serves for educational or entertainment purposes only. Hey everyone, welcome back to the pod. Once again, we have another very special guest. His name is Christopher. He is the founder and also part managing partner of Thrive Ventures. So it's a it's an early stage impact investing cap, venture capitalist based in Singapore. So uh, Christopher, welcome to the pod. And uh, the first question that we typically ask all the guests is, how do you arrive to where you are today? Thanks very much, Francis, for having me here today. Uh, really, I'm very flattered and honored. And uh, just for the record, for everybody who... Uh, uh, listening to the podcast today, Branson actually got to know me through uh, a session that I conducted four years ago. And ironically, I kind of forgot what was that whole session about. So, <laughs> so hopefully uh, today I'm able to present something more interesting and more flavorful. Um, yes. So thanks everybody for having me on the podcast. I'm Today, I, a lot of people always look at me and I always tell them I'm 44 this year. And people tell me that I look kind of young. I'm quite surprised by that too, by that statement. Um, I would like to break up my career into three buckets. Uh, the first one is being a serial entrepreneur. Second bucket is being about an incubator and slash mentor, and then followed by my venture capital days. So um, maybe I'll just give a little brief overview and then, you know, Branson, feel free to ask me questions from there. Um, so I'm a third generation Singaporean, born and bred. Uh, and I come from a family of entrepreneurs. So initially, when I first graduated out of the University of Melbourne, uh, it's very typical for the next generation to take over your parents' company. Uh, the unfortunate thing was that my father runs a business out of China and is manufacturing. So as soon as I graduated, he sent me off to China. And unfortunately, I come from a particular school that it's not very well known for their Mandarin. So I struggled. I couldn't speak Mandarin very well for them. And barely after one week, I couldn't take the smell because there was a, so much pollution I was going through. I gave up and I kind of quit. And that was actually my very first job. One week and I left. And uh, I headed back to Singapore, you know, to the surprise of my, my parents. And I told them, I want to strike it out on my own. And my, my dad kind of told me, okay, there are many opportunities. I have different business connections. What would you like to do? Uh, I saw a lot of potential in the e-commerce uh, during the year 2000s um, in Malaysia. By that time, I was doing what I call e-commerce arbitrage. Uh, Malaysia was struggling with their credit cards. They were not able to use their credit cards outside of Malaysia. And the second thing was that shipping into Malaysia was a struggle. So how I made money was I was selling books and beauty products via Singapore, transship out of Singapore. So all the shipments will come to Singapore. We also use our payment gateways all from Singapore where, you know, the Malaysian cards could accept. And that's how we made the money from the arbitrage. But unfortunately, you know, as Malaysia started to liberalize after six, seven years where Lazada came in, AirAsia was having all their payment gateways. Um, unfortunately, the arbitrage started to weaken. And for me, I felt that was also the best time to come back to Singapore. I had a lot of fun in uh, Kuala Lumpur. Uh, I decided to put a close to that, that particular business. Came back, 
did a series of new uh, traditional big and motor companies in education uh, and F&B. And then soon after, when I got married at about 31, um, I went into the incubation space. Uh, that was a, this is a whole very interesting story on its own, but uh, been appointed by the Singapore government uh, to issue out free government grants of up to $250,000 per startup. So that was really quite a interesting time for me was because we really got the opportunity to engage the, the startup community in Singapore, Southeast Asia. And I think in those eight, nine years that we were working in the incubator, I think we impacted over 3,000 startups. We went one-to-one, -one, give them free copy advice until so many of them became friends, you know, and... I, I went around giving more talks uh, across all the different universities in Singapore, hoping to promote entrepreneurship. And I think that was actually my reason of how I met Brenton. Um, and then finally, we realized after the incubation, we, after about five years into our incubation uh, industry, we realized that, hey, the venture capital industry looks really interesting. And we're not getting very much uh, money uh, just doing incubation. Why not let's take a plunge? And I decided to sell my inheritance, much to the shock of my family, much to the shock of friends who say that I'm selling off my property to actually raise my first fund. And it's been great ever since. I would say it was very, very painful growing pains. But now I think uh, as a, you know, the venture capital industry in Southeast Asia has matured. It's been great. It's been lots of fun. I have a few questions about the start of your career as a serial entrepreneur. So you mentioned like, you know, brick and mortar company. So why in particular, you know, ed education and F&B? Because I know like, you know, F&B in Singapore, uh, success rate from what I know my, to my limited knowledge is actually very low and then the margins are very tight as well. So uh, it's actually very, very difficult to succeed in from my experience. Yeah, so so can you tell us a little I bit would more always about that? give the advice to the different mentees that I've worked with is always stay uncomfortable uh, uh, and not to be too comfortable in where you are because the moment that you feel very comfortable in doing anything, uh, that means it's actually the time to move on or to time to really upgrade yourself. So when I first looked at, um, let's talk about F&B itself. Yes, you're right. Uh, you're absolutely right. That's a very, very tough business. Uh, it's long hours and the talent pool was very hard to, you know, get them to be retained, to work together with. But I think one of the biggest opportunities I had, it was actually part of my, my, my father's uh, businesses that he was running. And he had a very particular star manager, uh, somebody who was really... Uh, I really look up to. When I grew up, I saw him and he was one of the hard-hitting uh, managers uh, and he's always one of the best performing in my dad's company and he ran the restaurant business and actually that was part of the reason why I wanted to be there. Uh, I regard him as one of my five critical mentors in my life um, and he really taught me how to look at a profit and loss statement. How do you actually come into a restaurant and start counting and seeing whether this restaurant makes money, you know, and whether do you think, will we ever acquire such a business? So that was actually part of the reason why I went into FMB. And hey, it's consumer driven. It was fun in my time. I really like marketing. I did a course in commerce. So that was something that I really enjoy. Um, then after that, when you look at education, 
Um, education to me, especially in Singapore, it is what we call the cash cow industry. Uh, but I, I took a step further and I asked myself, if I wanted to make money, I wanted to have some meaning with that. And uh, I was willing to go into it because there was this uh, founder uh, that was doing the education business, was very driven, and he wanted to impart values to uh, primary school kids, where he saw that was the, one of the best uh, season of development for children. And he felt that other than offering education, it is about engaging them and giving them more exposure to different things in life. Uh, these were kids that were put into student care centers. So part of the education that we offered was also student care services. And I think that was, to me, quite a meaningful business. Um, I also exited soon after when the business started to uh, reach a certain level. Uh, I decided that I couldn't value it further and I kind of actually sold it over to my partner. Yeah. Sorry, how do you decide like when your value add has reached its peak? Yeah, because I, I think like uh, even if it, for me lah, as long as yeah. it's a cash cow generating business, I will probably choose to you know <laughs> stay on. <laughs> I totally agree with you on that. Um, I guess for me is that it was a self discovery on my own that being a very entrepreneurial person, um, I always can't take a daily regime. I need to see something new. I need to see whether I can grow this business further. Um, so to me, when I looked at the uh, education business, when it started making, it was just a standard cash cow. It was just, you know, getting the same returns. It will grow, but it will take another five years before, you know, it reached its next great level. And at that time, at a point in time, I was talking to my partner and I said, I do not know what other value add that I could give other than, you know, if he starts a new outlet, I can be there for him, you know, helping him set up the furniture, you know, and, and doing some painting if he needed me to do. But I think there was a kind of a limitation on that. Uh, and I really feel that uh, it's also to ask myself that I think it's back to my statement about we all got to feel uncomfortable. I was feeling very comfortable and I was getting kind of bored. And I really feel that that wasn't really growing me as a person. Uh, so maybe that could be another statement of why I say that when I don't feel that I was value-adding, yeah. Yep. Uh, moving on to the second phase of your uh, career, which is the incubator as a mentor. Mm. Um, I always wondered, like, can you explain a little in detail like how the business model of an incubator works? Yeah. I always thought that, you know, like they just uh, hold the companies in after a while, they just go off. It's more like a non-profit kind of thing. <laughs> Yeah. I think you're absolutely right, Branson. It was really, it was even worse for us because, um, so basically the government appointed 10 incubators. We were the only private group that uh, was pro doing pro bono service. That means we did not profit. We did not take sweat equity. Uh, we did not ask our startups to pay for the rental of our space, the usage of our space for all our services. Uh, what, what really transpired at that time was that uh, a fellow classmate of mine, ex-classmate of mine, came to me and he said, look, we sh if you look at the startup e ecosystem in Singapore, it's like a cowboy town right now. You know, there is a lot of venture capitalists that are coming as wolves in sheep's clothing. And it was kind of uh, a situation whereby entrepreneurs were being taken advantage of. Uh, they were giving up more equity than what they could be they should be giving up. They were not getting well-guided. And he said that, let's do what Silicon Valley does. 
pay it forward. Let's just start this and let's just live on the stipends that the government gives us, which wasn't much. I have to admit to you, there were months where we were panicking whether we even had enough money to pay our staff. Uh, but I think we were very happy um, that we were able to, um, uh, how I say, uh, spend the time to work with all the different uh, startup founders who came to us. And actually, that is the intangible value that we got out of it. Uh, was it profitable? No. Uh, the stipends that the government gave us was, in fact, not very sufficient. Uh, we were very fortunate. Uh, we had a sponsor that looked after us. Uh, they had the same vision as we did. Uh, it's a family office that was uh, a Singapore family office that also wanted to see the development of the entrepreneurship spirit in Singapore. Uh, so yes, did it make money? Nope. Uh, but I felt that uh, and quite a few takeaways that I got out of it. Uh, I built a whole network of friends uh, over the last 10 years. I'm uh, very proud that I played a part in, in quite a number of the startups. Some of them who have exited, some has gone into IPO. And, um, you know, it's, it's about just being there for them. Uh, it was really important. Um, and the other whole season, this whole season was really a great season where I engage people in their 20s. A lot of people who are uh, you grads talking about entrepreneurship, talking about their life careers in tech, coming to be a friend of mine. And right now, you know, they're in their 30s. Some of them are successful. Some of them are not. But hey, um, I think that's something that I took back. It was really great. Yeah. Earlier, you mentioned that there are 10 of such incubators in Singapore at, at that moment of time. How did uh, you become one of them? Is it uh, you guys applied for it or the government just, you know, <laughs> just give it to yes, you? <laughs> so they, they kind of put up a tender and they only had 10 uh, available slots. And the biggest joke that happened was that we happened to be the number 10th of 10 uh, to be chosen. So you got your usual uh, uh, groups that, that were chosen, your public sector groups, your universities, uh, your associations were all chosen. But the private side, um, we had no track record. And um, all we had was that we did a video show, something very much like Dragon's Den or Shark Tank, but more of a very milder version of it. And the, and when we did the pitch, I remember the, so the government official looking at us and said, I, either you guys are insanely mad or um, you guys are really up to something. And I do not know which one, but I'm just going to throw it and I'm just going to give it to you guys and, you know, hope that I don't get fired from my job for, for you know, approving you guys. And uh, I think truth be told, after six years uh, for this particular program, the iGEM Reload Program, uh, that was awarded by the National Research Foundation and IMDA. Uh, we were very proud that we were the second top uh, best performer in terms of bringing the number of startups uh, to be incubated under our wing. Uh, in fact, uh, there were a number of very great companies. I wish I could mention them, but I'm bounded by confidentiality. Uh, that A lot of them told me that, hey, if not for Tribe's first 50,000, uh, we issued the first 50,000 grant and followed by a, a, a next follow-up of a $200,000 grant. Um, some of them told me that because of that, it brought them to the next stage. And the advice that we gave them, you know, for, to get the first angel check, to get the next VC uh, to invest in them, brought them to where they are. Uh, so I, I really enjoy these kind of conversations. And that really also added a lot to the value of... Uh, 
what I did is because if you wanted to do anything with venture capital, early stage in particular, you really need to understand what makes a startup go from zero to one, which is that Series A. So these are the lessons that you picked up that that really brought forward to your venture capital skills. Are there any other things, any other lessons that you picked up from helping incubators that really help value add in terms of a perspective of an investor? So when you look at the incubation, it is ideation stage. Um, you know, when you, when I was working with quite a number of the university students and the young adults, they have ideas, but they don't have experience. And I think one of the takeaways that we take, we learn at incubation is it's not really a science as much as we would like to say that, okay, these are the 14 point metrics that we must check box off to make sure that this company is worth an investment. Uh, at the very early stage, a lot of things can happen. And so it's not just the science, but the art. Um, I always applaud people who do uh, degrees like psychology, for example. Uh, psychology is you start to read people. You've got to understand people's behavior. You've got to understand people's motivations. And usually the people who come in to do the entrepreneurship uh, have a lot of opportunity costs. You know, they are talented people and they could easily go to the MNCs or other bigger startups to work for. Um, my takeaway is... Uh, in doing for for incubation, you need to spend a lot of time getting to know the founder and to be the rally encourager behind them. And that actually plays a significant part of success. You cannot just say that, oh, they have a great idea. They are going to have a great model, going to be well executed, and that company will soar. Uh, I think the takeaway I found that uh, for these very early stage startups, the heart of the, the, the culture and the DNA of the company actually is really correlated to the heart of the, of the entrepreneur. Yeah, so I think that is some of the very interesting uh, uh, takeaways that I got with the incubator. Speaking of culture, right? So, I, I mean, different companies will have their own culture per se, but are there any great examples of what you feel like uh, a great culture at a startup should be like? I would say that there were many cultures. I wish I can tell you that uh, there is one single culture. Uh, I've seen, okay, it's really dependent also on the industry. Uh, there are some industries that really requires a very rigid uh, process. Like for example, your regulatory tech companies, there is no one way or another. There must be a very proper way of validation, very strict processes to be done. Uh, but there are, but it may not apply too well in a company that requires a lot of creativity, a lot of new disruptions in the business model. Um, so I had other cultures, of course, uh, where, you know, there is a very flat organization. They talk to each other uh, and, and there is this very big freedom for, you know, the intern to directly communicate with the CEO. Uh, though I feel that uh, there is also a limit to that extremities on the other side. Uh, it may apply well for, for some companies at the very beginning when it's very small. But the unfortunate thing is that as you grow bigger, processes and governance has to come into play. So is there a takeaway? Yes, maybe in the very beginning, uh, everyone wears multiple hats. Yes, you got to make it more flexible and there is speed. But um, how do you translate that down the road when business starts to pick up, when there is new fundraising? How do we actually have 
this, that very similar culture, I still find it a very big challenge personally. So uh, moving on to the VC stuff, right? When you start a VC fund, how, how does the process of starting the fund looks like from a legal perspective in Singapore? Do you guys just like, uh, I want to start a fund and then just register the business on Accra or something? Or how, is that like a more uh, strict way of doing it? Yes. Um, actually, in recent years, uh, the government has gotten more strict uh, in terms of uh, venture capital. Uh, there is this very particular license regime that uh, they put. It's under the Capital Market Services License in the Monetary Authority of Singapore. So basically, there is one specific license. It's called the Venture Capital Fund Manager License, or VCFM for short. Um, when I first started in 2015, it did not exist. And so here is a very interesting anecdote that happened. Um, I was writing quite a bit on various tech publications. And my name finally got surfaced to the government. And one day I had a very interesting call from this MAS who asked me, why are you not licensed? You know, you are apparently, you know, deploying capital to different people, uh, to different startups. You should be licensed. And, you know, I said, there is no license. And if you ask me to apply for the existing license, I can't meet those licenses. And they got upset about it and they said, okay, we'll do something about this. Let's have a feedback uh, session. And it took us about one and a half years of constant feedback to them. And finally, there was this announcement in Parliament that there was this VCFM license. And soon after, uh, MES called me and they said, here's the form, fill it up. We're giving you the license now. And so I think that's the first part about it is that you need to be licensed. Um, it's generally not too difficult, but it is onerous and it requires fit and proper people. People, that means uh, people who are in the, the business of venture capital, who has uh, the prior experience in doing that. I think that is really important to have that. Uh, it is not as onerous as the other tiers or the other kind of capital market licenses where regulatory and governance is way much higher. Um, the other thing that if you want to look at fund, uh, starting up a fund, now, um, I won't get too technical about it, but basically it's just two entities that you need to create. One is called the fund manager, which can be a private limited company in Singapore. It can be, it's usually based and incorporated out of Singapore. It's just uh, a services provide, uh, services fund manager company itself. That That's the nature of its business. And you've got a fund entity. Now a fund entity can either be literally any kind of structure that you look at is like a private limited in Singapore is previously what it is. But now we have a new structure called the variable VCC structure, the variable company something structure. Oh dear. I think you guys should go and Google and find out about that. Uh, it is not easy to get one because uh, it takes a, it's quite onerous. In fact, nowadays to set up a VC, it will take you at least about six, seven months. Uh, before you get the license and you're ready to be able to deploy as a VC. Uh, in the past, it was very easy. Just start up two private limited companies, one to hold the, the money of all your investors, your money, and the other one is the fund manager that holds the license itself. Um, but for people who are doing a career in finance, uh, I think you will start to appreciate that your talents are very much needed uh, in this industry because uh, while a lot of people think it's very simple by just setting up two companies and off you go deploying capital, uh, there are other considerations to think about, taxation. And the other thing is that, how are you going to get investors' money? 
that is also a very, very, very big issue. Um, when I first started off, uh, I was basically using my own money and a family friend's money. So that one was more or less quite simple. It's just me, who is the general partner, and one investor, which is a limited partner. And my, my LP, a limited partner slash investor, was Singapore-based. That was quite simple. But as of now to date, in, uh, for Thrive itself, we have about close to $28 US million worth of uh, asset under management. And a lot of these LPs or investors are across the world. So uh, it's getting more complicated. It's not as simple as, as everyone thinks that, hey, I got money, I'm just going to start a, a private limited and off I go. Uh, there's a lot of considerations that needs to be put into play, but I hope that gives you a little bit of an introduction of what how you start a fund management in, in VC. Six to seven months is actually very long right in the VC world. Like you get a lot of missed opportunities because of the regulatory uh, pockets itself. So uh, actually I'll go deeper into fundraising. So uh, you mentioned that you have uh, 28 million USD under AUM, but how did you manage to pull in and, like, that right? much capital? Yeah, how do you like, you know, how the fundraising process work? How do you actually, do, the, do you pitch to the investors or the investors come find you themselves? Yeah. I, I really wish that I had investors just coming and lining up and just say giving me money. But uh, that is a very sad, unfortunate truth that it, it takes a lot of hustling. It takes a lot of pitching, uh, especially um, I was what I call a very young VC that had no prior experience. I did not come from a, uh, another finance background. I wasn't from, another, I didn't work for another VC. So I didn't have those kind of uh, particular skill set. The only background I had was an incubator. Um, it's a relevant uh, skill set, but it is not the key skill set that investors would like to look at. Uh, investors, of course, are looking at, you know, when they look at venture capital as a product first, um, I, I would like to just uh, expand and take a little bit of a description about the world of finance. So finance is broken into two major sections. People usually invest in what we call traditional investments, your public equities, like your stock markets, your fixed income. These are the major uh, traditional uh, equities, um, traditional kind of assets that people look at. But you have the alternative investment space and only accredited investors, people in, in Singapore's context, unless you've got $2 million of net wealth and above, you are able to get involved or institutional investors who has more than $10 million worth of net asset are able to participate in these, uh, what I call higher risk, longer duration kind of products. And then when you look at all of that, there are so many things to look at in, in alternative investments. Asians will always go first for real estate. That is the first one they go after, followed by private equity. You go after very traditional SME businesses that, that generates dividends. They're very happy with that. They go to hedge funds. They then followed by a few other kind of alternative investments. So there's a plethora of choices. VC to them is a very small component and that alone makes it extremely tough because when you are going to pitch to an uh, investor, the investor usually has about say a hundred million to close to 3 billion US dollars worth of assets. And how much do they really want to deploy to a venture capitalist? Five to 20 million is the most that you will do. Um, it's, 
a very because to them how they actually view venture capital is it is only a small very very tiny component of the entire portfolio they are willing to put in some money there uh it's because they want to get diversification and they want to get some uh what i call vanity kind of uh, excitement because in the venture capital space that's where all the big announcements where you can get a five bagger to a 20 bagger kind of return so um it is very challenging because while I'm, I've in, I think in the last seven years alone, uh, I've easily pitched to three to four hundred high net worth individuals, family offices, institutions, uh, and I can tell you that I've only achieved about close to twenty five of them uh, who are supporting me, building a relationship with me, uh, and I'm still building relationships with the rest. Um, how it started, um, I guess it was very interesting. Um, when I first started off, me and my family friend who put in the money, we started to put in small checks and started deploying together side by side with angel investors. And slowly bit by bit, the angel investors and um, some of the entrepreneurs, uh, they started to make money from some of the, the companies that got exited. And so some of these people are the first people that believed in me. Uh, they saw me and my partner in very big action. Um, for Thrive, we are not exactly a passive venture capitalist. We usually take lead roles. Uh, we sit on boards. Uh, we uh, take the uh, uh, lead investment. We do a lot of governance work and using our incubation days, we use all the DNA of what we learned and we implement to help the companies reach the Series A. So that was actually our first uh, group of investors that came in. They, they told us that, well, you don't have really much of a record, Chris. Uh, so far, I think you're, you have one exit. Um, that is okay. Uh, you have some companies, the, there is this term called TVPI. The, the mark-to-market valuation has jumped tremendously, but hey, you still haven't got a lot of returns. Um, so to them right now, they're just saying that we like what you're doing because you are doing a lot of value add to the ecosystem uh, and your founders trust you a lot. And we know that if we don't support you now, we don't support you first, you're never going to grow. So I think that was really the greatest blessing I've got to have these 25 uh, LPs that have come in, give us 28 US million to deploy. Um, the exciting thing was that it has helped us so much because uh, the first seven years, we only did in what we call uh, SPV structures, special purpose vehicle structures. That means every time when there is a particular opportunity comes in, we will set up a, a particular fund just to bring in different individuals to invest into it. Um, that was how we did it. But now in this current stage, we decided that, hey, uh, COVID has actually taught us something new. Uh, if you want, you can always ask me about those lessons in COVID. But... Um, we are now starting a full-fledged 100 US million dollar uh, positive impact tech fund. And it's really exciting because of these people who helped us with the first 28 US million. We are now getting very new investors coming in, very new LPs who are giving us quite a bit of uh, the first amount of first checks, uh, which I will announce as, as it goes public when it's ready to go public about. But I think it was a very big encouragement uh, for us because we felt that we were not exactly the first in line. You know, there are many other VCs with better credentials, better people out there, but um, getting these people who are giving us a chance and believing in what we are doing. Oh, so 
uh, actually, when you first started out, it was just you and your partner, right? Then how yeah. do you get like, you know, people to the first few, like the really, really first few people to put money with you guys? Like, is there a, like a... A big of a trick. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, one of the very interesting things was during the last six years before 2015, where we first uh, deployed capital, right? Uh, being an incubator, uh, mentoring and advising over 3,000 startups and counting, um, they saw a lot of value in what we did. We were very genuine. Um, in fact, there were, in 2014, 2015, because of our, my, the article writing that I did, um, a lot of people said that if you ever wanted to do fundraising without being judged, go first to Thrive. Thrive is the first people that they will be the most amicable. They help you, they'll guide you to get you somewhere. And so what happened was that some of these people that we advised, uh, we, even one of them, I remember, we took about 12 months to advise a particular company. And then they came back to us saying that, you know, Chris, without your, your advice and mentoring, we won't be here today. And we would like to introduce you some of our investors. And so it was actually because of that karma, you want to call it, that relationship that we built with these people, uh, we were introduced to these investors. And um, these investors even told us, they said, we heard about your good reputation and we were surprised that you didn't want to take sweat equity, you didn't want to take money. Uh, and I, I hope they didn't give us money out of pity, but they felt that we deserve uh, uh, investment, we deserve management fees, we deserve uh, a chance you know, to do good works with people. Um, so I think that was really the first very encouraging note. Um, in fact, if you see the kind of startups that we invested in, uh, we are usually the first institutional investor. Um, and a lot of the other VCs don't get a chance to invest in them. Uh, for one reason is that we take six to nine months to build a relationship with the startups that we want to invest in. So we are very intentional. We don't really just put there and say, oh, you're a good company. We're going to just give you money on that. So um, I think that was the trick. Um, if you want to call it a trick, it's really relational. Um, and a lot of that high trust that we got with these investors. Yeah. So, uh, from what I understand, Trife is, uh, invested a lot in series A and also pre-seed. So why, why, uh, besides that relationship building part, um, why that segment? And also why not, uh, why VC in general as compared to you know, maybe a search fund or private equity? Well, that's a very, very, very big question. So I'm going to try and break that down into... Uh, uh, maybe three questions here. Why Southeast Asia now? Why venture capital? And then why in the seed to Series A uh, segment itself? Yep. Let's start first with Southeast Asia. Southeast Asia, the macroeconomic uh, 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 components are all there. 650 million is uh, uh, people and there's a rising mass affluent. Uh, it's the golden age of de economic development for Southeast Asia. Uh, pe people from all across the world, China, Europe, US, are now all considering Southeast Asia, you know, uh, and they want to develop new ideas and new startups to disrupt whatever that's currently here. So I think, first of all, Southeast Asia is really ripe for the taking. Uh, it, one of the very interesting points here is it's made out of 10 countries and it's very fragmented, but even in this fragmentation, there's commonality in them. And this is, I think, the most exciting uh, way of being able to carve out a niche 
and even possibly creating a unicorn out of that niche is actually quite likely because of these natural barriers that you're getting. The second one is that why venture capital? Why against not traditional private equity, commercial real estate? Don't get me wrong. Um, I, I just graduated with a chartered alternative investment analyst designation. And so I'm very focused when, you know, when you ask me the whole spectrum, I really respect the entire spectrum of alternative investment. Uh, the exciting thing now is that people have saw the potential of IPOs that have arrived in our, uh, for the unicorns. A bit them not performing very well and quite a number of them collapsing down to minus 60 to 80% of their stock prices. But that didn't really dampen the appetite. Uh, to a lot of investors, uh, institutionals that are putting money into venture capital, they see it as just part and parcel of the consolidation wave. And they're getting ready now to quickly deploy to capture the next wave. Because and every time a consolidation happens, the industry always improves and it gets better and better. So it was not unexpected to see some of these specs, some of these IPOs that have gone into a, a, a disaster in terms of falling in very bad, significant price point. But we're going to see some of them are going to recover. We're going to see even new potentials coming up. And why venture capital now? This is an exciting time because you get the number twos or number threes um, or the middle management of these unicorns coming out now to create brand new startups. And they are more seasoned, more experienced, which means higher quality, excitement uh, in terms of the kind of companies that we're going to get. And we may possibly see a lower failure rate. Uh, we will also see, uh, I've kind of lost my chain of thought here, but okay. In terms of the capital itself, um, it's very exciting. I just saw a report last December, 2021, a total of US 4 billion has been committed already to early stage venture capital in Southeast Asia alone. And then means that that means that they must deploy all that capital in the next three years. So what we're going to see is that there's going to be a lot of excitement in the later stage, you know, your series B, C, D, which leads to my next point here. Why seek to series A? Everyone says highest failures rate, uh, but to thrive, we've been in here, we have spoken to almost 3000 startups. Uh, those 10 years uh, tells us that there is a way to reduce that uh, failure rate. There is actually also a very good way of improving on that success rate. It's really about having all that deep guidance, mentoring, making sure that mistakes are not made. And a lot of people say that's a worst dangerous ground, but to us, that's the best place to make money. You know, you make money when there is a lot of uncertainty. And of course, if you know how to control that uncertainty with your experience and knowledge, all the more you're going to gain out of it. So hope that gives the uh, good uh, coverage of what you asked for. Uh, I have a question with regards to risk management because I know that, uh, you know, in hedge funds, right, they got their hedging with like sometimes with options and stuff. Like, how does a VC, right, especially the your you guys as an early, very early stage investors, how do you guys hedge uh, positions mm -hmm. per se? So if I may put in the derivative components of options are still very much of what I call a what if situation and it's a more of a reactive situation to react against any extremities of the tail risk. Um, for us, uh, where we have learned in the, in the last 10 years itself is really building a very deep relationship to understand the art of venture capital, not really the science. Uh, yes, we, we invest in great founders with great businesses, 
But the most key thing is to spend time to try them out. So basically what we usually do before we invest in any company, six to nine months uh, beforehand, we will work with them. We will actually advise them and mentor them and guide them all for free, you know, to make sure that how should they develop themselves to reach a pre-seed or, I mean, a seat to, to a pre-A kind of investment round. And what we do as well is that we start to assess their psychology, their motivations, and that reduces risk because at the first part of it, a lot of, at the very early stage, it's very highly dependent on the founders. And if they don't um, stay committed and stay motivated, no matter how great their idea is, their business is gone. So that is something that we need to ask ourselves, like, why are they doing all this? And does that really help us to write out that risk? The other risk is that entrepreneurs are fairly lonely people. They really need a shoulder to cry on and they really need someone to work side by side with them and to bring that success. So that alone is one component that we work on. We also do a second thing that uh, we are, it's part of our due diligence is that when we see the company, we see their business model. Uh, we bring them to different friends, the 3000 friends that we made across Southeast Asia. And we say, okay, one of my friends, can you all look at it? And will you all try one of your products? And you tell us whether this product makes sense. And it takes a while, uh, maybe about three to six months where we see the iterations happening. And when it's successful, there you go. We've got the, we think that that helps a lot in terms of reducing the different risk components. Um, unfortunately, if you tell us that, you know, once we are committed to the investment, is there any way to get out of it? Unfortunately, not very much of options in the venture capital world. Yeah. Chris, can I ask, right? Um, I saw the portfolio companies on the website, for example, there are quite a number of, uh, programming schools, right? There's upcode, there's coder school, there's Byte Academy. Is that intentional where, you know, you're producing the talent that you ensure that uh, the HR, the human capital is coming through. And then you technically, those people who you know you train and they're correctly trained, then you bring them to the, the uh, vibes. That's a fantastic question. Um, actually, it wasn't intentional. It just came out of a very interesting uh, uh, collaboration that we had. Uh, it all started because I wrote a very controversial article on uh, tech in Asia, which is uh, the dark side of uh, tech mm -hmm. development in uh, startups. I think that was in about 2015 and apparently it caused so much ruckus. Uh, the, the coding community were very upset about what I wrote because I told, I kind of did a lot of uh, investigative journalism and I found out that the tech talent wasn't exactly good. Uh, startup founders will have new batches of tech talent. When they get more money, they start to hire the latest ones. And there was a lot of sheep stealing and there was a really a big of a disaster. So bottom line is there wasn't enough sufficient supply of talent. Um, it got wind of, uh, the government got wind of it. And I was actually brought to, into a conversation, a very deep conversation with the government who started to scold me. And they told me that, you know, stop telling us what's the problem. We already know the problem. Help us solve the problem. So that was a very interesting day. Um, uh, like quite a lot of uh, I won't I won't mention names because they are <laughs> my good friends now. I mean that, that's all how we oh, yeah, all yeah. start here in the startup ecosystem. Everyone are all enemies and become best friends after that. So so it was quite funny that time and uh, just so happened I was flying up to San Francisco and 
the government said that, hey, we actually want to talk to these few people. Why don't you go and have a look and you go and meet them and you give us your opinion about it. Um, and we decided to start with that. Um, unfortunately, it was very, very tough uh, when we talk about the tech talent out of Singapore. Um, Singapore has a, a, a natural way of how they train our people. I call it the MOE system. Uh, it re- when, you, when you want to train someone in coding, it can't be overly structured. And um, I have to admit that it's still a struggle. There has been, in the entire coding industry in, in Singapore, it's gone through a lot of consolidation, a lot of retries and tries and retries. But I think that there is still a struggle in terms of getting the best talent out. So what happened for us was that we went around the region and we decided if we can't get enough Singaporeans, no matter how many Singaporeans we want to train, we're never going to satisfy yeah. the, the, the demand. So we went out there and we found Coder School uh, that was based out of Vietnam. They were another such company that we spent almost one year with them before we, we decided to deploy capital with them. And we're very proud of them because um, they did something that was really amazing. They made money during COVID. And Vietnam was actually an economy that started to prosper during COVID. And in fact, some of the very interesting things was our graduates uh, were working for US firms. And these US firms, uh, that means remotely, and one of their top talent went to work for US Facebook, drawing about 250,000 US a year. And that actually was one of the storylines of where we decided that we wanted to go into positive impact. So Coder School was doing positive impact. It was basically training uh, local Vietnamese people in English and as well using uh, UC Berkeley's, University of California Berkeley's standards because the founder was actually an American that was studying there. He came and he taught them the computer science uh, kind of Mm. uh, methodologies there. So we found that, hey, this is something that we wanted to do. Um, So ironically, instead of diverting that talent and supply to Singapore, these people actually went off to the US instead. So, and it became profitable to us and said, hey, actually, this is great. (laughs) We must all just keep this going. Yeah. I understand. But investor side, right? Because I know, um, to be be fair, the first time you raise capital is difficult. But after a while, you're like, okay, everybody has money, right? Mm. (laughs) Everybody's throwing money around. So I'm pretty sure you have to be intentional about who is your investor as well and like the type of value add that they can bring right i guess uh how do you guys um the partners i think about that and you know how do you raise funds from the people that you actually want to take money from uh i will give you a trice mandate in the world to give you that context but uh if i could be as blunt to anybody who doesn't want money i tell you if i could just (laughs) accept everybody's money i would love to but uh the unfortunate thing is that uh this is what I call negative screening straight up. First of all, uh, the challenge of now, uh, there's a lot of strict uh, KYC, know your customer and anti-money laundering acts. Mm. And um, even if you have a little slight tinge of uncertainty about any investor, even if the investor is based out of Singapore. You mean the you source of the money, is it? The source of the money, uh, whether how they got their money and you are mm. not satisfied with it you should not accept that money because there are a lot of reputational and governance repercussions if that ever happens. Um, So that is one. Uh, There is also groups whereby um, they wanted to take the money, uh, they wanted to give the money, but they wanted to kind of control the fund manager. 
So it's non-discretionary straight up. And that mm. is actually quite dangerous as well. So this is something that we say no to. Um, but when you talk about uh, what we're looking for, so it's uh, for Tri's mandate, especially for this positive impact fund, the 100 million we wanted to deploy to 30 of these uh, high growth B2B uh, impact companies that focus on healthcare, health and wealth. So your health is your food and agri, your healthcare. Your wealth is not fintech. Your wealth is more on your education, uh, your supply, uh, your supply chain, your manufacturing, your logistics, which makes up a bulk of Southeast Asia. So who we were looking for were actually the next generation of family entrepreneurs. When you look at the makeup of Southeast Asia, 92% of uh, businesses are family-run businesses. Anyone from a one-man show all the way up to conglomerates, they're all family-run. Hmm. And to us, we felt that the only way to make really positive change is that you need to partner with the next generation of Fu uh, Tai, which we call the second generation. Well, the business owners, people in their 20s to 40s, educated overseas, educated locally, but have an idea that they want to transform their, their parents' companies in a very positive manner. And only with that kind of money that comes in, then they will have a strategic interest to, to use the products of the positive impact companies that we have. So I think that was how we, we started to draw in. Uh, but I have to admit, it has its challenges as well. Uh, not everybody is going to tell you they understand positive impact. You know, family businesses are telling you, see me what exactly is positive impact i just want to make money so how we pitch our story is you make money when you do positive impact ah so then that's the way to actually convince you to come in yeah oh that answers your question about uh, how how we have been moving so you know my answer don't be so rigid and don't yeah, be so yeah, insistent yeah. on doing standard fund management you've got to appeal product market fit to your clientele understand Understand, but you you as a managing partner, right? I would think that um, it's like you think about okay, how do I drive the business forward, right? It's either mm. generate more alpha from the portfolio companies, and also on the forward facing side, it's like you need to either raise more capital, talk to more people, get more deal flow in, and deploy the capital, yeah. right? How do you structure your day? Like, are you like eighty percent okay? Just need to talk to more people, like top of funnel, just uh, <laughs> smash yeah. as many people as yes, well. yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> I think, uh, John, I think you got it right, actually. Okay. That's basically what I've been doing. <laughs> so me and my partner decided that he stays on the buy side. I'm going on the sell side. Uh, he says that uh, I know how to talk more, uh, So, which I believe, actually, he's also a very good speaker himself. So uh, I spend most of my day now uh, engaging uh, uh, conversations with uh, people, uh, with the mm. high level individuals, family officers, giving them updates on my own company portfolios, but also really to tell them what am I reading. In fact, uh, I'm not sure whether I'm ready to do this, but I think it's timely for me to go back into journalism. I have actually quite a few very interesting anecdotes that has happened over the years. And um, if, if people know me personally, I'm quite a bitch. I'm quite a person who loves <laughs> to complain and loves to mention a lot of stuff. So maybe I'll go back into writing and sharing with them that. Uh, and I feel that's important because that really gets people to know you better. Mm -hmm. uh, they really understand why you are in this and that builds a lot of trust. Uh, the other part of the day now, uh, in recent days, because our fund is getting its initial soft commits already, we're getting quite a number of people uh, willing to put down money and we're really starting to deploy. Uh, 
Yep. So it's really reconnecting with quite a number of startups because it's going to take us a six-month journey before we start to deploy into some of the companies itself. So that's the usual that uh, I do. Um, unfortunately, also a little bit of time nowadays, maybe about 5 to 10% a day is really on governance itself ah, now because okay. it's getting worse on that. Yeah. Mm. Okay. Bryson? So, you know... Uh, I know VCs, right, they like to value add in terms of like strategic connections or maybe like, you know, some of the companies that they have they help each other grow. Then have, has there ever been a situation, right, where you speak to a startup for, as you mentioned, like six to nine months, you speak to them, you give them advice, you value add, then they, they commit invested. And then the, the founders started to become like, you know, they're very stubborn entrepreneurs. Then they, they like deviate from your advice and just want to do what they want to do. Has that, has that ever happened? And then uh, how, do, how do you guys deal with that? <laughs> Well, all the time. So basically, <laughs> let's put it this way. Good founders are good to receive uh, information, but are also excellent in understanding that information and doing what's best for the company. Uh, as a director of, of, of some of the companies that I work with, uh, I've given my opinions, but I also must respect the founders of how they want to do what they want to do. And sometimes I will tell you, I can, I can be wrong as well. That means right, the, the bet that I thought that there would be a better chance in my strategy didn't work out. They actually did better in what they were trying to do. Um, we usually uh, do work with them. We commit and, and, you know, they always say, once you sign up, you have invested in them, you're their director, you have literally, you're in bed with them. Mm -hmm. And so any of their problems and any shit that comes out of it, we have to actually deal with a lot of it. Uh, it's really sad to tell you that... Um, uh, a lot of service providers are now my best friend. The tax advisors, the litigators, the lawyers, everyone has all now come into play. Um, I think this is very much part and parcel as the company grows. Uh, and I think it's a healthy thing. Uh, if you find that a company starts to just blossom by itself without any like uh, uh, friction between the, the startup founder and his board of directors and investors, then something is really wrong with that company. It's just doomed to fail. <laughs> Yeah. So else, I, I mean, I'll just try to just mentioning again, the mantra, you got to be uncomfortable. Uh, when, when you go in there, they have to accept that you as an investor, you as a board director are going to have some controlling rights and they just got to live with it. Yeah. And they got to get used to it because governance as the company grows bigger and bigger. The next stage of investors are also going to take a board seat. And we all need to understand that, hey, um, it's a growing phase that eventuality all this input is for the best of the company so i think that's important yeah okay chris um imagine this right <laughs> so branson has a, has a company he comes to you he raises money you like the idea you give him money so yeah. what, what happens from the entrepreneur standpoint people listening to this potentially even raise from you right like mm -hmm. day zero to day 90 after commitment is given like what yeah. happens how does strife help me um okay. scale yeah so I mean, there will be a continued conversation. Actually, the okay, in terms of investment, is quite fairly straightforward. You will take, a, give a term sheet, you will offer it to a, dis, a quick discussion between uh, the startup founders and, and the VC. And then if we're all agreeable, it goes into the investment com com committee to be approved. 
And then after that, from there, there will be a short period of due diligence, you know, just really going through the data, making fact check, everything is okay. Then we will sign a SSA, share subscription agreement slash shareholders agreement. They are technical in nature, but basically that is about giving us the control and economic rights to invest into a company. So that's done. And then after that, I joined the board. And what usually happens is that some of these startups at the C stage has never even conducted a board meeting. So that goes into governance mode. Mm. Uh, and it comes into a very regular conversation to a point whereby sometimes we get messages from them in the middle of the night and we can have conversations 24-7. So it's really a, a period of time where they will come in and say, okay, these are plans six months, midterm, long-term. How do we do things? Um, and usually what we, we tell them, your, the, the, the next fundraising starts now. It takes about maybe 24 months for you to get the next fundraising round, but you need to build and prepare your company to move in that direction. And mm -hmm. so you get the whole gamut of, uh, 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 I would say, consultancy services that we need to provide them, uh, PR, legal, you know, fundra fundraising strategy, uh, expansion, go-to-market strategy, product-market fit, all yeah. that different things come into play. Yeah. Oh, so your consultants go in, and advise them just but execution side they do right it's just yes. that you are okay got it so we have ourselves internally and uh, when our fund grows bigger we actually have some potential operating partners who are, we are going to get ready to bring them on board these mm -hmm. are ex-founders people who want to jump onto the buy side of uh, venture capital and um so we are going to get these people to be the first group to be sitting on the board and all that but over the last 10 years the many, many friends that we have made are now service providers. So we usually send these service providers over consult slash consultants to take over uh, to actually help augment uh, the company to make sure that they're ready for series A aging growth. Okay. Yeah. So uh, I don't know earlier we've been talking about like entry, uh, you know, dealing with it along the way, but how about exits? Like when do you know when uh, to exit the companies that you invested in uh, since you're like a pre-C or series yeah. A, when do you exit and how do you know they are right at the right time to exit? So one thing that is really exciting now that has happened in Southeast Asia uh, is the a, a lot more companies, a lot more unicorns are, going, are staying private. They don't really wish to go to IPO or SPAC routes anymore. They are very much more interested to keep fundraising on the private side. That means there are many, many more potential oversubscription rounds for every single fundraising level from B all the way to G and so on for. And so for us, uh, we are actually very upfront with uh, the follow-on investors. Uh, in fact, those are our potential partners that we partner with. We partner with late stage uh, um, private equity companies. Uh, we also partner with late stage uh, family officers who actually looks at our deal flow and they want to take our company forward. And usually we will go into the secondaries market. So as long as there is no oversubscription, we will start to par down. Uh, the, we are very upfront because we do not know whether we can value add from the B all the way to uh, IPO round. Uh, because, you know, in our last 10 years, it's always been about very early stage kind of startup investing. So this is the last question that we have that we ask all guests who comes on. So who is this? Who is the CEO right that you follow and uh, you know take idolize after? Wow, 
Well, frankly, I okay. At this moment in time, I don't really have anybody that I've been following. Uh, I have to admit, um, I'm a little bit fixated right now in terms of uh, fundraising, talking more to family authors. Um, but personally, I mean, I had in, when I want to talk about my story is about having five mentors. Uh, I rather than you know trying to follow a very specific public figure that may not suit you. Uh, my advice to to your the audience out there: look for a mentor, look for somebody that knows you personally and can give you a very uh, intimate kind of advice. Uh, like for me, uh, actually, that was the best thing I really enjoyed the last ten years, where I've worked with so many different mentees and to see them succeed where they are is exciting. So I think I hope that answers your question. Yep. Lastly, how can anybody find out more about you and Thrive or even reach out to you for a conversation? Uh, so I will need to qualify first, right? So uh, I will be very more than happy to speak to Singaporeans for, who are under the age of 35. You can actually go to my website, ChristopherQuack.com, uh, and you can see my background and everything. Um, I still think that I have a slight small bandwidth to speak to young Singaporeans. And so you can just write to me through that way and introduce yourself and tell me why you think that uh, I should be a good mentor. Um, so I think that I'm, I really still enjoyed it. Um, if I could have a little bit more time, it's just about sharing uh, maybe just one mentee of mine who uh, was the valedictorian in Singapore Poly when he was 19. I advise him to, uh, you know, when he's in San Francisco, before he went to army, he went to San Francisco. I told him, take out some books and start to record all your conversation. He came back and he says that after army, I'm going to do a startup. And today, uh, he's the founder of a global mentor list called ADPlist.org. And I'm really very impressed because I'm just watching his entire journey right now. He's now currently uh, moved, uh, visited India and he expanded a whole community there. Um, to me, I think that is the kind of people that I, I hope to get. Yeah. Yep. All right. Thank you so much, Christopher, for your time and your generous sharing. So thank you all and see you all next. Okay. Thank you very much. For thank you.